the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, was a merchant in time immemorial. He practiced generosity, non-harming, and he was a, a, a good adept in meditation and had a lot of confidence. He was in his compound one day and looked across the courtyard and saw this radiant holy man who had come down of the uh, Himalayas and spontaneously felt, I want to offer him uh, the best food I have today. Gathered up all his good food, put it in a bowl, and started across his courtyard. Hovering in the shadows was Mara, the personification of greed, hatred, delusion, the, the killer of joy and spontaneity. And Mara thought, I must prevent this great act of giving uh, because it, the, the merit of it may lead one day to this bodhisattva becoming a Buddha, which of course he was right. So halfway across the courtyard, the, the whole ground gave way and our merchant was standing at the edge of the abyss. His hair stood on end, he sweated and he trembled and he heard these voices in the darkness say, go back, go back, you'll never make it. And at the same time, all these other alluring voices saying, come in, come in, come in. He didn't know what to do. He was frozen in fear, paralyzed by doubt and confusion. When he had started out, he could see the holy man, the radiance of the man, the, the beautiful day, clear sky with a few clouds, the song of women and the talk of men and the laughter of children. And suddenly it was all gone. And all he could see was darkness. In his confusion and doubt and despair, he forgot even where he was going and why he was going, what he was doing. And he just had this voice in him say, keep going. So he walked into the abyss and began to just free fall. Now we'll leave him there for a moment. <laughs> Ground vanished beneath him and talk about our own journey as bodhisattvas, as beings of awakening. How many times we too come to this edge of the abyss, uh, stand over it, feel the fear and the confusion and the doubt. It's the beginning, yet again, of a faith, a deeper faith, a deeper confidence. It's the confrontation, yet again, uh, with, with Mara, with Mara's forces. Where's Mara? Is he or she outside or inside? Or perhaps more accurately described like um, the spider's web, which is woven from within, both and the same. Every time we sit or walk, try to pay attention, we're up against Mara's greatest weapons forgetfulness, spiritual slumber, separation from the truth of things as they are. Time and again we might ask ourselves, where am I? And where am I going? Why am I doing this? Our practice is to bring forth, to bring into birth again and again a kind of naked spirituality where we face the fortunes of the present moment, 
the vicissitudes of life, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, blame and praise. Again and again, each sitting, we, we look at these vicissitudes. It's a process of peeling away the layers of conditioning and discovering the innumerable measures used to defend against the truth of things as they are, the experience that we're having in the moment. To try to avoid it or change it, we bring a, a passionate presence of mindfulness so that we can begin to remove the comfort zones that we cling to. Practice in retreat form is a, a kind of surrender to the setting of limits. Not, certainly not in any rigid form because it's the aim that we make the practice our own. That we, we internalize the practice of non-harming, of awareness, of wisdom. And we find our own stride, our own rhythm, the form of sitting and walking, standing or lying, and, and the moving about with a seamless awareness is to create an incubator where we can be open, sensitive, and protected, a caring container so that the embryo of awareness and wisdom can grow. And we present a more or less balanced uh, sitting, walking, uh, in those moments when standing is helpful or when we lie. But really there's no, there's no rules about you need to sit this long and walk this long. The intention is to create the right balance of energy, of concentration, uh, as uh, supporters of awareness. According to personality, many of the, the great Sayadaws or teachers in Burma may stress one or more, one famous monastery, uh, because that particular Sayadaw was unable to walk due to a so-called incurable illness, uh, could only stand and lie. And slowly, like 10 minutes at a time, he was able to keep and nurture a continuing mindfulness. And when he became uh, deeply awakened, and by the way, cured as a side benefit, he attracted a lot of followers who were also uh, ill in one way or another. And he just would sit with them, a few minutes at a time, so that they could pay attention to their breath, breathe with them, join with them in getting them to just to notice uh, whether they were lying or standing or sitting, to notice their breath. He himself was renowned for being able to stand uh, in supposed continuous mindfulness for 12 hours or lay down in mindfulness for 25. It's a long time. <laughs> and another side all that uh, I was a, a, a friend, a monk friend of mine in Upper Burma was telling me about this other side. Uh, we were 
reading this book together in Burmese, he was translating, and it said that this particular Sayadaw favored walking. Walking meditation was his thing. And it said in the book that, yes, yeah, sitting was okay, you know, take a break and do some sitting. <laughs> but then walk. And so I asked the, the Uzinji, this monk, I said, well, you know, how long would he walk? He leafed through the pages and he says, oh, here. He said, generally he liked to walk for two days. <laughs> <laughs> the point is we find our own rhythm with the practice. <laughs> And it is a, a balance between the enjoyment and happiness with which we should be practicing, with that attitude, that spacious attitude, and cultivated by uh, the practices that bring happiness, the happiness of seclusion and the happiness that comes from metta practice, to balance that with the good of deep dhamma practice. Balance because what's deep isn't all, what's, what's deep dhamma, or what is good, isn't always pleasant. It's the nature of vicissitudes. Sometimes it's, uh, our only thing to do is hover at the abyss, to fall into it, to deal with the doubt, the confusion, the uncertainty. Through practice, we begin to rely more and rest on uh, faith and confidence, rather than comfort container of metta and mindfulness uh, bring about this confidence, bring about a trust in the Dhamma. We begin then to let go of our own agendas about trying to control experience, make it go a certain way, and really lean back on time, lean back into the Dhamma, be carried by it. That sparkling silence that comes from the the, the happiness of seclusion helps us to surrender to our reduced circumstances. That is just following the form. We sit and we walk, we stand or we lie, we eat, watch the sunset, go to interviews. It's, it's quite, it's, uh, it's the limitations, the power of limitations. It's our incubator, our womb. Letting go agendas and uh, let Dhamma, let the Dhamma carry us. Difficulty, doubt, even despair will arise. It's inevitable. The, the great Mahasi Sayada, the uh, sort of leader or founder of this particular tradition, used to speak of healthy or wholesome despair, the kind of struggle that we go through in spiritual practice. It's not at all necessarily out of aversion or ill will. A friend of ours who I mentioned last week, uh, Nainoa Thompson, the Hawaiian navigator, uh, we were talking with him once and asking him about the, I was interested in knowing about the use of in the Hawaiian spiritual tradition, what they call pico, uh, down at the, below the belly, a center of being, a center of knowing, where intuitive uh, wisdom arises, where they said that the ancient navigators could, they could feel their canoe, uh, the image of their canoe in that way, and no direction, even when 
uh, they couldn't see due to storms and whatnot, and, and no, nothing to guide, no stars, no moon, no sun, and uh, wild seas, couldn't even feel the currents. Uh, asking him uh, about his early experiences, he's about 40 now, and he said when, when he first began, one of his very first solo journeys, without that master I had mentioned uh, um, from Micronesia, Mao Pialug, the, the great uh, uh, shaman navigator, was not with him. So this was Nainoa's first solo navigation experience. They're out for some days and a storm came and the storm lasted uh, for many days. And in the daytime, you know, he'd try to guide by what he could see and the currents and whatnot. This went, this went on and one night he, he just reached his limits. There's no instruments in the middle of the, the largest body of water on the planet, in the Pacific Ocean, a raging storm, and feeling so vulnerable, so exposed. And he's a novice, he's new. His crew is also exhausted and, and dazed, not knowing what to do, falling asleep. And I know doesn't want them to see how despairing or exhausted he is because he's their guide. He's the one that's supposed to get them through. So dark, darkness and clouds, nothing, no sense of direction whatsoever, feeling battered and lost. He goes back to the stern, totally exhausted, and props himself up with his arms on the gunnels, just so he could, be, he just wanted to collapse, but just so, so there would be the appearance of his presence, he did that. And then inside, he, would, he just collapsed. He felt his exhaustion, his despair. And, he's, and he was saying to us, and, and then he just let go. Inside, he completely relaxed and surrendered. Let go trying to know where he was, or uh, uh, guiding, figuring out which way to go. It was as if all the forces of the universe were against him. What else to do? So he just let himself fall. And then he said, and then, in that relaxation, in that surrender, I just knew where the moon was. He said, I don't know how I knew, wasn't trying, wasn't in my head, but I knew where the moon was. And his energy came back. And he, and he directed the crew which way to go in the storm. I remember early years of practice in Burma, particularly the first, first long period there. I came against this doubt and against this despair, having come such a long ways and given up everything familiar friends and family, uh, the food I knew, all the comfort zones, and the feeling of, of risk that got me there, and then feeling like I couldn't do it, feeling paralyzed by this doubt, feeling fear, feeling failure, alienation, separation, loneliness, really a Mara attack. I didn't know why I was there, what direction I, would be, I should go. 
And this continued for days and week, a week or two. And also I was a novice at being a monk. I didn't know how to wear the robes properly. So they would easily kind of fall off at embarrassing moments, you know, bowing to the teacher or bowing in the, in the, uh, in the meal hall and whatnot. So the only one available to show me how to wear the robes uh, was another young Western monk. He uh, was visiting from another Asian country for a while, and he wasn't practicing very much, so therefore he was the only one available. Uh, but I'd, I just, from the beginning, I just didn't like him. And he had this kind of uh, aura of pomposity, this aroma of arrogance. And I sort of felt like his stoolier, that, you know, that he needed me to, for something. But I did need him. I needed to know how to wear the robes, but I, I didn't want him. So that, was, that made me feel even more despairing. You know, where was I? And, uh, it got so bad that trying to, struggling to sit and walk, I'd just go back to my room and, and weep. And I just, I, every day I felt assaulted by a sea of attack from, from within mostly, but also sometimes projected from without when I would see this guy coming. You know, so finally, the, I, I just, to make a long story short, I, I felt there was just nothing else to do. And I would just get a kernel of teaching from uh, one of my teachers. You know, would just said, just try to feel what your present moment experience is. Just be in the present moment. I'll take care of everything else. And try to make your days uh, smaller. You know, wake up till breakfast and breakfast till the, the main meal. And then from then to the afternoon and from the afternoon to the evening. So that there's a it's felt within reach rather than such a long day. You know, so I took that in and it's a, a more reduced circumstances, more setting of limits. And it did then feel within reach. I thought, well, I can do it. I can do, you know, from 3 o'clock to 5.30. I can manage that. That's not such a long day. And so I tried to begin to feel the elements of doubt. Physical oppression, mental depression, longing, loneliness, fear, uh, uh, um, alienation. Just, and every time I could feel that, from the sense of being in the present moment. It was okay. It was still unpleasant, but it was okay. There's a sense of being grounded and feeling what's real, what's true, rather than all the effort that had previously gone into avoiding that, not wanting to feel that, trying to control experience, trying to make the physical and mental despair disappear. And then I just, I added elements of humor to it, an exaggeration. So that, when I, for example, whenever I'd see the Western monk, you know, he used to like to come get in the line in front of me uh, when we were lined up, 100 monks lined up for a meal. And he'd just stick himself in front of me. So I'd just be in his shadow, and there'd be his big, fat, bald, white head in front of me. <laughs> and so I gave him the label H.O. for hated one. <laughs> which was 
just enough humor to an exaggeration to provide detachment, but also connection with my feelings and to reclaim the projection. As long as I, he, as long as I let him have all the ill will, then I wasn't feeling it. But if I could just hold the energy of it with a little bit of space, then I could feel the feelings. And then there's that sense of then I'm just going with it, of surrender, of feeling the feelings. And I kept coming back to the present moment. And then I began to feel carried by this warm energy, and more awareness, more willingness to feel the feelings, willingness to risk, to let go of the familiar props, just to be with what is. When we let go of wanting anything in particular to happen, or anything that's happening not to happen, there's a shift. And we're touching things as they are. And it's amazing the quality then of confidence that comes into the practice. It may only happen for little spurts of time at first, but gradually it continues. And that's what we feel carried by. It's like a total grace when those moments when the resistance disappears, we're just open to the universe, to the range of joys and sorrows. And there's little or no separation, just a, a deeper knowing of things, the nature of the body, nature of the mind. It's said that as faith increases, Mara trembles. There's the more confidence that comes into the stream of our awareness. The uh, Mara's energy is scattered and is unable to focus and channel the powers of forgetfulness onto our minds. Different kinds of knowing deep in faith. We, we attend to the vicissitudes at first, just the changes. Some sittings are, are we feel consumed by discomfort and uh, unpleasant sensations, itchiness and pain. In other sittings, there's a greater opening, more of a free flow, quality of awareness, and able, ability to be with our, uh, our present experience. Begin to attend to the intricacies of the mind and body, the elemental nature of the body. See specifically how what, we, what it is we call body is just this continuous flow of elements, tightness and tension and waves of energy, patches of pressure, points of vibration, heat and cold, all following their own nature. No really ability to control it. Different kinds of knowing. We start to see their ephemeral nature. They appear and disappear and how they're interconnected. There seems to be a, a direct relationship. You can't really separate mind from body experience, but we can distinguish what's physical, what's mental. 
different flavors, different quality, different textures. The interconnected nature. They're continuous, appearing, disappearing nature. What's what we could call venturing spirit is the early or initial tender faith that takes us closer to our experience. That, that surrender, that willingness to risk where we allow ourselves at times to fall into the abyss, to what is. Like Alice falling down her tunnel where she just completely lets go and sees everything around her whirling about, but that wondrous, joyous interest. Ah, and then suddenly she's in a new place, just looking around. Different kind of knowing, or knowing differently, in a different level of faith, deeper kind of faith. We practice not to counter the realities of change or impermanence, we practice not to encounter the experience of physical or mental suffering, dukkha, but rather to understand them. When we sit, when we walk, when we stand or lie or move about, pain and change are inevitable. At first, it can be difficult to just be with it. We want to move. We want to resist it or a certain area that feels like a block, we want to work through it. What's it about? Why is it there? Is it a physical uh, pain from, like, posture pain? Or is it that the underlying uh, neurosis from the work I just came from? Or is it a deeper dhamma pain, old karmic knot? It may be any or all of those. But the relationship to it uh, uh, matters greatly because if we make a project out of it, if we want it to do something in particular, it's actually a form of resisting going into it deep, deeper. We might also associate good practice with, with pleasant sensations. And we think, if I just can get to that smooth, uh, velvety, flowing, feeling in the body, then it'll be good. So I'll, I'll sit this way and I'll sit this way, or I'll stand or I'll lie. But even if we were to invent the most incredible, you know, uh, waterbed type support para paraphernalia for our sitting, we would feel our bodies are going to hurt. The Buddha said, First noble truth, our bodies hurt. <laughs> Psychological experience, too. Mind states and emotions that we dislike, that we fear feeling. Ill will, envy, attachment, aversion, fear. We can resist all these states. We can fear feeling them all the protective measures that our early wisdom developed to keep ourselves from feeling unbearable feelings, shame, betrayal, abandonment. We defend against 
feeling these uh, feelings and even defend against feeling unadulterated joy. Because we've been hurt before or betrayed before in some way. We've been separated from it before. This too is Buddhist teachings that it's not about countering the realities of changing mind states, of the dukkha states, the vulnerable, unsatisfactory, fragile states. It's about feeling them, understanding them. Our spiritual experience often is felt to be a kind of collusion between culture and conditioning to spend our time and our direction and our lives avoiding the unpleasant and chasing the pleasant. We construct our whole lives and attitude of practice around that. Understandably, there's a kind of security in our attachments and a great risk in relinquishing the familiar supports, props. But this moment-to-moment birth of a naked spirituality, of a passionate presence of mindfulness, awareness, is not about countering the realities of dukkha. It's to see and appreciate them in a positive light, in a new way, with a deeper knowing, or knowing differently. These realities, these experiences of the body and the mind are to be understood, precisely what's to be understood to become liberated. There's a joy in knowing the truth of things as they are. It's often thought that um, it's oppressive to open to dukkha to feel dukkha. But it's actually oppressive, or even more dukkha, to not know dukkha, to not know pain of sitting, or mental pain, or spiritual longing and pain. It's liberating to know dukkha. We touch into the truth with these glimpses, and then we may be shattered again. may be shattered only to open to something even more deep. So that there are many levels to surrender and knowing. Now we've left our uh, brave merchant still hanging in this abyss. What's happening with him? Well, he starts to fall. And he's still in this whirlwind of confusion and unknowing, forgetfulness, that there's something in him that just says, walk on. So there's this feeling in him of walking on, even though he's just falling, and he completely surrenders, he completely lets go, and he's grasping neither for, for, for light nor pushing away or avoiding, uh, resisting the darkness and pain. Still there's all these voices and, and awful smells and sounds. It's his whole world, his whole experience. And he just falls, and he falls, and he lets go. And suddenly he's in a new place. 
And all that vision, the whole abyss, the whole abyss just disappears. Only a moment has passed. And there again is that bright, clear sky. And he hears the children laughing and the women singing at the water wells and the men walking by in fraternity and the birds singing in the trees, the light glittering off the leaves. And there's that radiant monk who hasn't even blinked an eye. He alone could see what was happening. So as, a, as our brave merchant walks up to the gate of the compound, the saintly, holy man says, well done, well done. He said, in this floating universe, doubts and fears will assail you time and again, will cloud your vision. Just keep walking. Just keep going. You'll come to a deeper understanding. You'll come to a deeper faith and confidence. In this floating world, being as things are, surely we will meet again. And he received gratefully the food that was offered and walked back to his home in the Himalayas. And the merchant, he went back in to his compound and he indeed continued to live his life generously without harming, practicing his meditation. And he met Mara many more times in his life, came up against that doubt and fear and despair. But always he would just keep going, surrender, come to a new level of seeing things differently. Aiken Roshi, uh, so perhaps the, the great Western Zen master of, of the West, has um, retired recently. He's 80 years old. And Michelle and I saw him when we were teaching. We teach at his center on Oahu. We saw him a couple months ago. He had this uh, big lump on his neck. And he said, and we said, you know, are you okay? What, what is that? And he told us that, well, that he just found out. That he uh, actually didn't know for a long time. It's just growing there. And he was just observing it growing there. And then he had a, a birthday uh, party. And uh, so many of the members of his sangha and our sangha were there. We were out of the country, or off island. And uh, and one of the people, one of the sangha members, actually from our sangha, is a doctor. Uh, and and uh, nothing stops him from seeing things through his eyes as a doctor. So he saw this lump and he says, "What is that?" And Roshi said, "I don't know." <laughs> 
and he has this little bag, this little pouch on his waist, so he immediately dug into it, pulled out a little tape measure, you know, and measured it. <laughs> this is at the middle of the birthday party. Measured it, was feeling it, and he diagnosed it. Right there at the birthday party, Hodgkin's disease. And later Roshi went for examination, and it was. It's uh, fairly treatable with uh, chemotherapy, and so he's been undergoing those treatments. So recently he wrote this, this letter, which I'd like to uh, end with. Well, first, there was um, an old friend of Roshi's made a remark that since he's had this disease, that Roshi's changed. He's changed a lot. So someone said this to Roshi, and Roshi's response was, Ha! I think everybody should do Zazen all their lives and then have chemotherapy. <laughs> Which reminds me of another little short thing. The, a good friend of mine who's uh, been a longtime friend and uh, associate of, of Ramdas received a phone call from him a few days ago. And uh, you know, he's had this stroke. He speaks very slowly, very difficult. And uh, very slowly he said to her, he says, he says, you know, I don't wish this stroke on you, but I wish you to experience what I have experienced. Aiken Roshi wrote this, he says, the realization I experienced years ago and subsequent glimmers of understanding were in effect within a personal container that rested on a strata of deep self-doubt. The shock of massive doses of chemotherapy drugs has been to break up the strata all my doubts have dropped away. At 80 years old, I am at last liberated from the resistance I have long felt to other people and to the outside world generally. Every day is a jewel. Every jewel is different. Every act, every thought, every encounter is new and precious. I read the words of the old masters and laugh and laugh. What hilarious, hilariously funny fellows they were. <laughs> I remember the words and the kindness of all my teachers and weep with gratitude. I listen to the music of Bach and Mozart and Haydn and thrill to the gorgeous sound. The thrush sings in the early morning in my heart. Let's sit together for a few moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.